All right, if we could find our way, if we could find our way to our seats. Team Uganda is going to be sharing their ministry today after the second service, but here to just say a word about this is the head of Team Uganda, and that is Mr. Bill Payne. Let's welcome him. Okay. God is amazing. I don't know how many, well, a lot of years of my life that uh, I watched people talk about going on missions trips and listen to missionaries. And I was always, you go, you go. That's, yeah, you go. Uh, and never thought that I would uh, be involved in that. Uh, but this summer, um, four of us had the blessing, some of us returning for um, third and fourth times um, to visit Uganda and uh, participate in ministry there. Um, our base was 
a high school there, um, Bethel Covenant College, that we've sort of um, fallen in love with. Um, and, but the ministry went on a lot of places. We tra uh, group traveled to Casega, to a small church there by the, by the Nile River, uh, to Kachansi, and just saw uh, some amazing things um, during our stay. Um, a part of the ministry was setting up a computer lab. I got bogged down uh, a lot in that. But actually, this time I had the opportunity. They were starting to, some of the kids from the orphanage are starting to go to computer school. So it's kind of nice. I got to hang out with them and share with them while we're fixing things that were broken and getting things going again. Um, we'd like to ask your prayers. And we're very thankful also for the giving of the church. Uh, we were able to do a lot of things for the high school. Uh, we also have about $1,000 left over that we're going to be able to use up uh, to bless at Casega, they have um, a, um, a ministry there uh, with giving out medicine and things of, of, like that. We're going to be able to give, min uh, give some money to that, which will be really wonderful. Um, we ask your prayers. Um, we plan to continue our ministry there. We don't know exactly what direction that's going to take, but we're planning a trip uh, for next year. Um, Carly is uh, seeking the Lord and making plans to work in Uganda full-time next year, um, being based out of um, Bethel Covenant College and possibly doing some other things, but things are lining up for that. So we ask your prayers in that area. But I'd just like to thank you as a congregation for giving us this opportunity and just say God is amazing. He lets uh, people like me um, participate in his work. So thank you. Thank you, Bill. And um, there, there will be a time where team, the members of Team Uganda are going to be in the modular building after this second service. And uh, they'll be just sharing a report of what God did in and through them while they were in Uganda. And there are refreshments. So just whether that's relevant or not, just know there will be food. Uh, over there along with the blessing of, of hearing the members of the team share. Carlos Limtiaco, one of the members of our pastoral staff, is going to be bringing the word to us uh, right now. Before he does, let me just say a quick word to set a framework for his message. One of the things that um, is happening right now on a leadership level is uh, we're trying to restructure our counseling uh, ministry and part of that entails, like the elders are wanting me to, uh, uh, to do less counseling and to kind of move me out of most of that um, and to bring other people more into that role, namely Carlos and, and others. But for this restructuring to take place, uh, we're going to need, uh, for example, our care group leaders to uh, carry more of the counseling load. By the way, they're wanting to move me out of this so that I could focus more on leadership development. I don't think it was because I am a bad counselor, um, but there's just other things that we need to give some focus to uh, leadership-wise, um, that, that, and that's where my energies need to go. But we need our care group leaders to, uh, uh, to be serving in that role, but a part of that picture also involves uh, every member of our church to see themselves as uh, God-ordained counselors in the lives of their brothers and sisters. And um, we fully believe that um, um, if we look objectively at God's word, every believer would see that I am called to counsel my brothers and sisters and called to be counseled by my brothers and sisters in the Lord. And unfortunately, um, in our society today, over the last century, 
those biblical instructions that are, apply to every believer to be counseling and ministering to one another on these levels, uh, many believers are looking at that and saying, well, I can't do that, and that belongs to the professional class of counselors. You just don't find that kind of structure in Scripture, and so we want to instill in you um, a sense of excitement and hope with regard to seeing yourself as a counselor so that every believer would take responsibility to get in the Word of God and to be trained to be an effective counselor to their brothers and sisters in the Lord and to look to their siblings in the Lord for that counsel as well. And so to serve those ends in part, uh, we're having Carlos come and speak to us on this subject of counseling and how you can be an effective counselor uh, for the Lord in the lives of your brothers and sisters. So let's welcome him. Uh, boy, I don't, this, it's too tall. Okay, we at Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church are extremely blessed uh, to have Pastor Milton as I consider the topic of counseling, I can remember a time back in my early Christianity in which I needed some counsel. There's been more than one time, but on this one occasion, I can remember going into Pastor Milton's office when the office was wherever it was, I don't remember, but I remember being in the office and sharing with Pastor Milton some things about myself opening up my journal and allowing him to read from the journal the things that I journaled about myself and my own sin struggles. And I will never, never, never forget leaving the counseling office, walking down the stairs and feeling like I was walking on air. And I have had the privilege of being able to sit in on occasion on some of Pastor Milton's counseling sessions. And I am amazed at, at how effective he is in terms of discerning and providing some instruction and just basic counsel to the people to whom he counsels. Uh, we are truly blessed to have a man like him. Um, but nevertheless, as he indicated, he's moving on to some degree uh, into more of a leadership development perspective as opposed to a counseling perspective. If you are a hard case, you may have the privilege of getting Milton. If you are an easy case, then you'll probably land with, you know, second string, Pastor Carlos Limpiaco here. Anyway, having said all of that, let's look to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts for this message here. Uh, dear Father God, we come before you this morning. We give you praise. As we already have, we continue to give you praise. Lord, we affirm the fact that you have been infinitely kind to us considering our sin and considering your holiness and what we deserve and yet lord you have been so kind as to give us the air we breathe and the clothes on our back and countless blessings in our life and beyond that lord you have given to us of yourself you sent your son into this world to die the death that we deserved and in you we have every spiritual blessings there is no condemnation lord for us who believe we have been set free from the law of the power of death lord we give you praise and thanks and this morning lord i pray that you would use me as an instrument of your blessings 
that, Lord, you would use me uh, to counsel my brothers and sisters concerning this topic of counsel. And then at the end of the day, every single one of us would be better equipped at some level to answer your call upon our lives to counsel. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me begin by saying this morning that giving and receiving counsel, this goes without saying. It is a part of the Christian experience. It is a part of the human experience. The topic of counsel is absolutely relevant to every single one of us. Whether you are on the receiving end of counsel or you are on the giving end of counsel. This is something, as Milton already indicated, that is relevant to every single one of you out there. God calls you into this. And, and it may be that at some point in the past, or perhaps some point in the future, God will bring someone along your path, maybe in the context of care group. And there is someone in your group struggling with the issue of singleness. And there you have an opportunity to counsel someone coming along your path, struggling with a relationship gone sour. Perhaps they have been sinned against, or perhaps they have sinned against someone. What's that? You need to turn it on. We're using this mic. Oh. This is like a major distraction. I've got this guy behind me. It's not working? Pastor Mike messed it up. Okay, Pastor Mike, he's going to get on me for going overtime now, and I'm going to have an excuse. Are we good? Okay. Um, cut that out of the, um, the recording. Okay. Let's see, where was I? Uh, someone, someone comes along and struggling with a relationship gone sour. They've been sinned against, or someone has sinned against them. You've got an opportunity there to counsel someone comes along and um, they're struggling because they've been trying for, for a number of years and this couple is unable to have children. They come to the doctor's office and the doctor says it ain't gonna happen. And they come to you discouraged and downcast and wrestling with the issue of not being able to have children. What do you say? How do you counsel a person like that? Maybe uh, someone comes along and they're having a difficult situation at work. Uh, struggling with the decisions being made by the authorities in place. What do you say? How do you approach that situation? Maybe someone has a life-dominating sin. They are an alcoholic or addicted to some sort of sexual sin, sexual lust, pornography. Maybe that person struggles with, with anger uh, or any number of life-dominating sins, materialism, you name it, sins of the outer person, sins of the inner person, sins that are rooted in the heart. So someone comes along and you are presented with an opportunity to counsel. And we know from God's word that the power of life and of death is in the tongue. And at that moment, you have the opportunity by God's sovereignty to impart either life or death through the counsel you give, through the words you speak. God has given to you an opportunity to be an instrument in his hands through which counsel can be given. Again, I submit to you that counsel 
is simply a natural aspect of the Christian experience. I want you to turn to Romans 15, 14 for a minute. Turn. Okay. Turn to Romans 15, 14. And as you are turning there, let me just say a few things real quick. We know the backdrop. The Apostle Paul has presented in, in detail the gospel to his readers. And upon the basis of the gospel, he has called them in chapter 12 to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. And along the way, he has unpacked some very practical ways in which their lives are to be informed by the gospel and by offering themselves as a living sacrifice. He has made the gospel very practical and very relevant. So this is the backdrop, but we come to Romans 15, 14. Notice what Paul says here. Paul says, concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced, I am absolutely convinced, there is no doubt in my mind, I am confident that you yourselves are, and a number of things here, full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. The Apostle Paul speaks to his readers, and herein he says that you are able to be instruments in the hands of the Redeemer through whom he can minister his counsel to your brothers and sisters. And mind you here, he is not talking to the elders of the church. He is talking to every single believer here, and he is saying, and by way of extension, I am saying that every single one of us ought to be able to, to say that we are competent to counsel, that we can be used of God in the lives of our brothers, brothers and sisters to minister counsel to one another. Of course, some have, uh, are stronger in this ability than others, but every single one of us at some level are called to counsel. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to look at eight key elements of effective biblical counsel, eight key elements. We will not uh, look at each of the tree in detail. We're going to fly high and we're going to look down at the forest. This is an introduction, so please keep that in mind. I will be unable to give it the sort of detail that, that would be nice to give to, but I'll give you just a bird's eye view, okay, as you consider um, counsel, giving counsel to someone that God brings along your path. Eight key elements of effective biblical counsel. I present these, and I did not make this up. I stole this from um, those who have taught me in the past, and so I'm just giving, to, giving this to you as something that has been passed on to me. Um, what we have here are the eight eyes. okay? This, the, the eight eyes, each of the eight points starts with the letter I. So the first I, kids, if you're filling in your blanks, involvement, okay, involvement. What is involvement? If you want to be an effective counselor, you must gain involvement in the life of the person that you are counseling. This is the establishment and advancement of a genuine relationship. Uh, in involvement, you are in essence winning your brother or winning your sister. You are an expression of love and care and compassion to your brother or to your sister. Listen to what the writer in Proverbs 11.30 says. He says that he who is wise wins souls. And so part of what you are doing is you are winning the soul of the person to whom you are counseling. You must win their soul. A wise person has that ability. We're not talking in this passage merely about winning people to Christ, although that may be part of it, and it is. We are also talking about just the wise person uh, wins the heart of the person to whom 
he or she is in relationship with. If you want to be effective, uh, effective, you need to gain involvement. You need to win souls. So question, how do we develop this involvement? What are some key features of gaining involvement in the life of people? Involvement is developed through gospel-centered compassion for the counselee. Part of what you do is you acknowledge what God has done, who he is and what he has done on your behalf. You understand uh, the pit from which he dug you, and then you seek to be an expression of that to the person you're counseling. So the gospel is absolutely central to this process of giving counsel. It's central to this process of gaining involvement, so it is developed through gospel-centered compassion for the counselee. You look at Jesus and countless time in the gospels, by way of example, we read that, that he saw and he felt compassion and he did something. He healed them. He ministered to them in some way. And likewise, we, like Jesus, need to see, feel compassion and do something. You know what? Jesus won the hearts of the people to whom he ministered. He gained involvement in their lives. Involvement is developed through showing respect to the person that you are giving counsel to. You must show respect. Consider the Apostle Paul, for example, and what does he do to the Corinthians? This was a messed up group of people, and yet Paul refers to them as his brethren. Okay, that is a term of endearment. That is a term of uh, affection. Uh, in essence, he is communicating to them that they are part of his family. You are my brethren in Christ. And he is communicating respect to them in the process. Involvement is developed through the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the counselor. You need to be walking in the Spirit, full of the Spirit, manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. And as you are doing that, you will be more effective at winning the soul, gaining involvement concerning the person to whom you are ministering. Involvement is developed through effective verbal communication. You must consider as you seek to gain involvement in the life of the person that you are giving counsel to, uh, you must consider uh, the words that you speak, the choice of your words, the tone in which you speak the words, the timing of the, uh, of, of the time in which you say what it is that you say. These are all just aspects of gaining involvement, effective communication. Involvement is developed as well through good listening good listening. This would include good eye contact, good body posture, mirroring to the person that you're seeking to minister to, back to them what they have said to ensure that you understand what they have said and asking them if you do have right understanding. As you do this type of stuff, you will gain involvement in the life of the person to whom you are giving counsel. And then finally, involvement is also developed through effectively fulfilling the remaining seven eyes in the counseling process. What are the remaining seven eyes, you ask? Well, I will give you the answer. The next eye is inspiration, okay? So we start with involvement. We don't necessarily, you know, the, the, the order is sequential, but it, you don't necessarily have to follow things in this same order, but it seems to work out that way. Uh, in some measure. But the next I is inspiration. What is inspiration? This is the process in which the counselor seeks to instill hope that is rooted in the gospel. This is so important. And anytime anyone coming along with problems, with trials, with struggles of life, struggling with sin, anytime a person like that comes along, 
um, that becomes an opportunity for you in which you have to seek to inspire them with biblical hope that is rooted in the gospel. Turn to Hebrews 6.19. Let's read what the author of Hebrews there says concerning hope. There are thousands of benefits to having biblical hope. And I think this passage does a beautiful job of, of touching the surface here. Hebrews 6.19. The writer says, this hope, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. This hope we have, well, what is the hope that he is referring to? In the larger context, it becomes clear that the hope is a hope pertaining to the Old Testament promises which find fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, finding fulfillment in the very person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is the basis upon which we have hope. And so this hope the Lord Jesus Christ is the basis upon which we have hope. This is the hope he refers to. This hope we have as an anchor to the soul. Now I want you to think in terms of two ships out there in the middle of the ocean. And both ships are surrounded by rock formations, some of which are jutting out of the water. And one of these two ships has a good, solid, heavy anchor. And so that anchor has been thrown over the side of the ship, dropped into the water, and landed at the floor of the ocean. Then imagine that a, a big storm comes sweeping through, a crazy storm, a typhoon-like storm comes sweeping through. And all of a sudden, the waters are totally crazy and choppy, and the boats are beginning to fill with water. And you've got this one with the anchor and the one without the anchor. What is going to happen as the storm passes through and by the time it ends? The boat without the anchor is going, to, is, is going to be shipwrecked. It's going to be smashed into the rocks. It's going to go astray. It's going, to, it's going to sink into the water as a result of being broken apart. But the one with the anchor is going to be protected. It is going to experience stability. It is not going to be easily shaken from its position. There's a sense of protection when the boat is anchored. And biblical hope serves as a protection. It is an anchor to the soul. And so God would have you to be used in the life of a person needing counsel to instill in them biblical hope. There are countless benefits of biblical hope, some of which I've touched upon. Here are some other things. Biblical hope helps one through trials. It helps to prevent depression. It is an antidote to depression. It helps one have patience and even patience in the midst of trials. Biblical hope helps a person uh, obey the Lord. It results in obedience. It helps to produce holiness. It aids in boldness. These are all benefits. It helps to make one experience joy and to be glad in the Lord. Biblical hope helps to bring about peace, that, that overwhelming sense of well-being, even in the midst of the difficulties of life. Biblical hope. Hope serves as an anchor to the soul, and God would have you to minister hope to the people that come your way who are in need of counsel. And I don't think there's any exception. Somewhere along the way, you must minister biblical hope to the person. And so that person comes to you struggling with singleness. What do you do? What do you say? How do you encourage that person? This person is lonely, struggling with singleness, or maybe this person is struggling with the fact that a loved one has passed on and now they are alone. What do you do? You direct them to the gospel. Why? Because there in the gospel is the basis for their hope. You direct them to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say to that person, you know what? 
and you do it gently, graciously, compassionately, but you tell that person, the Lord Jesus Christ understands. He understands what it's like when he is left alone. There at the cross, he had to cry out to God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And prior to that, his disciples left him. And so you're dealing with the issue of loneliness. Know that in the gospel, you have one who understands what it is like to be lonely. And you can actually look at your situation as an opportunity given by God in your life to help you to relate better to the gospel. This is an opportunity for growth. And so what you do is you turn what it is that a person is going through into the positive and help them to see it from a God-centered perspective, from a gospel-centered perspective, so that as a result they can experience the biblical hope that anchors their soul so that they can experience stabilization. The person comes along and has been greatly sinned against. Someone has sinned against this person. They're coming to you, and you have an opportunity to impart life. And in the process of imparting life, what you do is you help this person to understand. Maybe they know it already, but they need to hear it through your mouth that the Lord Jesus Christ himself also experienced being sinned against. Come with me. And look at the Lord Jesus Christ. See what the Lord did in response to having been sinned against. He says, Father, forgive them. And likewise, God would call you to do the same. Father, forgive that person who has sinned greatly against me. For that person does not know what he or she is doing. And so you offer this biblical hope, you connect them to the gospel, which is the foundation for hope, and you encourage them that way. That person comes along struggling with submission, the wife struggling with submission to the husband, that person at work struggling with submission to the decision of the boss, or maybe a brother or sister is struggling in terms of submission to the leadership of the church and the decisions that the church has made, and they're struggling, and it's a heart struggle for them. What do you do? You bring them to the gospel. Jesus understands. There in the garden, here he was, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood in total agony, struggling with the issue of the will of the Father for him. And he said, oh, oh Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. He knows what it is like to struggle with authority, and yet he did not sin he obeyed the will of his father. He goes on in his prayer to his father and he says, Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And the person coming along in need of biblical hope, the person coming along uh, you know, um, in, in this sort of a situation um, in which they're struggling with authority, you can direct them to the Lord Jesus Christ and his example. Maybe someone comes. There's, I... I hate to be bound to, it bugs me. It, it, anyway, I, I need a counseling session after this sermon is over. Um, someone comes along and, and they have been struggling with a life-dominating sin. The sin of anger, the sin of lust, the young man who has been involved in pornography for 10 years of his life and he just can't seem to withdraw himself from that. Someone coming along struggling with materialism or there are some heart idolatries that that person is aware of in their heart and they just can't seem to get away from it. This person comes along struggling with sin and God calls you to instill hope. And what you do is you take that person and you direct that person to the cross. 
and you help that person to realize that there is a solution to the condemnation that you feel. There is a solution to the guilt that you are experiencing because there at the cross, all of your sin, all of what it is that you are struggling with was laid upon the very back of your Savior who in your place took the punishment of Almighty God, receiving upon himself the wrath of the Father. And so you, therefore, according to the Scripture, based on the authority of the Scripture, you are no longer under condemnation. You have been set free from this law of sin and of death. And you no longer have to yield the members of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. You don't have to do that. Furthermore, Jesus Christ not only died to deal with your guilt, but he was raised bodily. And the very same power that was at work in his life, raising him from the dead, is the power that you have available to yourself so that you no longer have to flip to that pornographic page anymore. You no longer have to turn the internet on and go surfing the net for pornographic images anymore. You no longer have to yield the members of your body to anger, to materialism, to laziness, to to self-centeredness and selfishness. You have been set free, and God wants to use you and the words you speak as life-giving words rooted in the gospel so that the person being ministered to can be encouraged with biblical hope. If you omit this from your counseling perspective, you are way off base. This applies, I submit to you, almost every time in the, in the process of counseling. And so we move on to the next I, inventory. Oh, this is so important. Inventory involves getting as much personal data from the counselee as possible in order to best understand the actual and potential variables leading to the problem. This is a vital step toward finding the best biblical solution to the problem. You see, we haven't even arrived at the stage of instruction yet. We're not there yet. We're still gaining involvement. We are still um, instilling hope, seeking to encourage the person. Part of what we need to do as well is take inventory. Listen to what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 18, 13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. And I'm sure many of you have experienced someone giving to you counsel without even discerning what's going on in your heart. And the end result is you get discouraged by it. Be very careful that when you move to the place of instructing, that you actually do so on the basis of having asked the right questions, having discerned what is going on in the heart, having taken inventory, collecting data. In James 1.19, James says, everyone is to be quick to hear, quick to hear, listen to what is going on in the heart of the person whom God wants you to give counsel to. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. Proverbs 25, a plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding is able to draw it out. And would it be that God would use you in the life of a person that you may be counseling in order to draw out the matter of the heart? And it takes a wise person to do that. That plan in the heart is like deep water. It's hard to get after. It requires a lot of work, a lot of skill, insight, wisdom. But the man of understanding is able to draw it out. Let me submit to you that you need to gather data from all of the different areas of a person's life. Oftentimes we underestimate the value of 
data gathering. And it's important for us to understand um, all of the various details of a person's life, ask them questions concerning their marriage, their church, their education, their emotional life, their financial situation, the things that they like to do, their social life, their relationship to friends, to family. Ask them all kinds of questions. It's not enough that someone comes to you and says, I struggle with anger. But go below the surface and ask the questions and explore the various aspects of this person's life. Go into their history. Go into their past to find out where the pattern began and really seek to try to fully understand the life picture of the person to whom God is calling you to give counsel so that when you know that person on the basis of your knowledge of that person, you are in a better place where you can interpret what's going on and eventually instruct them in the ways of the Lord and give to them the counsel that comes from God. Gather data from the various aspects of the person's life. Ask them, you know, how is your relationship to the Lord? What about your devotional times? What about your prayer life? So on and so forth. Data should be gathered in order to discern the heart. You want to know what is going on in terms of the thoughts, the feelings, the behaviors, the desires. And therefore, appropriate questioning is essential. Appropriate listening, again, is essential. There are various means to gather data without getting into the details. One of the best ways is by simply hanging out with a person, asking questions, and getting to know them. So this brings us to the place, having, having gathered the data, having discerned the, 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 the heart of the individual, having known the idols of the heart, knowing them in terms of the outer person, the things that they do, and the inner person, the, the thoughts, the feelings, and the emotions, and even the volition. We, we know this person really well. We are then in a place in which we are able to interpret what is going on. This step of interpretation involves interpreting the data gathered in light of the Bible and then deciding how best to counsel the counselee. It means knowing exactly what the problem is and then determining how to solve or deal with the actual problem from a purely biblical Perspective, And as I have said before, in the interpreting process, you've got to discern the heart. Yeah, you pay attention to the outer man, but you want to pay attention to the inner man as well and discern what is going on in the heart. Know the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And know the heart. Uh, you need to um, use the information that you are gathering to look for themes and or sinful patterns. Look for themes and sinful patterns that you observe in the life of this person. You should be looking for repeating sins. Look for the common circumstances that lead to the sinful patterns in the life of this person. Look for common ways in which this person deals with his or her sins and problems and difficulties of life. Consider the counselee's thoughts and, and actions both before, during, and after the sin that they commit. Okay, you want, to, you want to unpack those things in the process of interpretation. Evaluate the data against the backdrop of God's word. And then once you have what you think is a good educated guess, a good interpretation, you want to test the validity of your interpretation. Test 
the validity of your interpretation. It means you've got to rev prayerfully review the day that you have gathered and review it in light of the standard of God's word. Continue to gather data because further information gathered may cause you to reinterpret what you think is going on. Sometimes we think we have it nailed concerning a person and what they're dealing with and what they're struggling with and the counsel we need to give them. But then all of a sudden, another item surfaces and then all, <laughs> that just kind of throws everything into a muck. And we have to go back and reassess what our interpretation is. But you continue to gather data and allow that extra information to shape your thinking. Perhaps it'll confirm your initial uh, interpretation or perhaps it would serve to reject your initial interpretations. But... Um, continue to gather data. That's one way of testing the validity of your interpretation. Run your interpretation through a trusted friend. Be careful here. You don't want to be guilty of the sin of gossip. But there are, um, at times, appropriate ways in which you can ask another person to get their, their insight concerning the matter. And maybe this is a good thing to do. Just ask the person that you are seeking to minister to. You know, I, I, I think I, I, I have a sense of what's going on here. Is it okay if I share with you? Oh, yeah, it's okay. And then proceed to share with that person what you think is going on. And if the person is open and honest, that can serve to be very helpful to you because they may tell you, you know what, you've nailed it on the head. You know, that time years ago in which I was in Pastor Milton's office and I needed some counsel, there were some things that I arrived at by way of my own interpretation of what my struggles were all about. And he simply confirmed what I thought. And any wonder I was able to leave the office feeling like I was floating in the clouds. I was encouraged through the counsel that he gave to me. And part of what he did is he tested the validity of his interpretation by asking me. And it rang a bell. It rang a bell for me. It is also important in the interpretive, you know, the stage in which you are interpreting what is going on to create some practical plan for helping this person overcome the problem they have. Come up with a practical plan. I'll say more about that in a minute. So we move on to the next I. Once you have, um, you know, gained involvement, you have inspired them, you have given to them biblical hope, you have taken good inventory, you have interpreted it, and you've tested your interpretation, and you seem to be right on the money, um, you get to the place in, in, in which you are going to instruct that person from the word of God. You're going to instruct them from the perspective of a Christian worldview. You will instruct them from the basis of the gospel. And you will give them instruction that is going to help them to move from the struggle that they are having into a place in which they are experiencing victory. Not that the struggle is removed necessarily or the difficulty, but they are victorious in the midst of the, vict in the, midst of the struggle. So instruction, instruction. Instruction involves teaching the counselee from God's word in a way that relates scripture to his or her life. Ultimately, the goal of instruction is personal sanctification characterized by a life of love and obedience to the glory of God. Keeping in mind that verse that says there is power, the power of life and death is in the tongue. Keep that in mind as you proceed with instruction. Paul in Ephesians says to the Ephesians, and we can use this by way of application in our instruction phase of counseling. Uh, he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, 
but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear, in this case, to the person or to the couple who is hearing. Ultimately, God wants to use your instruction in their life to minister his grace to them. In instruction, we insist on the Bible as the authority, that it's the ultimate authority, and we also insist that God's word is sufficient. It is a sufficient resource. We, we can use it in the life of a person to help them move in the direction of sanctification and growth and holiness. If you consider God's word and what it says about itself, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is what? Two things. It is inspired by God and it is profitable. Inspired and profitable. Scripture are those two things. It is inspired and profitable. And in relation to profitable, it is profitable for, profitable for, my mind is drawing a blank, teaching, reproof, correcting, and training in righteousness. So it's profitable for those things, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the ultimate goal of it all is the man of God may be basically mature, equipped for every good work, thoroughly equipped, a mature man experiencing the fullness of God. So we insist on utilizing the word because it is what God wants to use in the life of a person, his word, to help them to grow in their sanctification. The psalmist says, thy word I have hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against thee. And there's numbers of verses we could turn to. The instruction that we give has to be based upon an accurate understanding of God's word. It has to be totally relevant to the individual. The biblical instruction must be appropriate to the counselee's problem, need, maturity level, stability, teachability, background, abilities, and learning style. Bottom line here, it's got to be appropriate to the person. What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5.14? He says, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And then he goes on to say, be patient with all men, be patient with all of these. But what is Paul saying there? There are three different types of people. Now, there's more than that, but just, he just picks three different types in that particular passage. The, the unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak. And what does he say concerning your approach to each of them? You adapt your approach to where they're at. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. And as you are doing so, be patient with all of them. Okay? And so we want to be very sensitive to where the person is at in terms of the instruction that we give to them. It may be that the person is struggling with laziness, and we think, man, they are unruly. We need to admonish them. Well, maybe you're right, but maybe you're wrong. Maybe that person is struggling with laziness as a result of great discouragement that is in this person's heart. And so what this person really needs is not so much the admonishment as much as this person needs encouragement. And sometimes you can totally miss the matter of the heart because you're totally looking at the, the externals. And sometimes you're on the money, sometimes you're not. That's why you've got to take good inventory to totally know what is going on in the heart of a person. Uh, adapt your approach to where the person is at. Discern where the person is at. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all men. And so the instruction that we give needs to be appropriate to the individual. And oftentimes, the person that we are seeking to give counsel to needs to be reminded of and even encouraged with certain truths, the sufficiency of God's word. The person of God, help them to develop a right view of God. 
Most sin ultimately is rooted in a person having a wrong view of God. person is struggling, and oftentimes at the heart of the struggle is a wrong view of who God is. They might say the right things, but practically speaking, they have a wrong view of who God is. And oftentimes you need to help them to see God afresh more clearly, and as a result, they are able to experience movement in the right direction towards transformation. Sometimes you got to teach the person um, about the idolatry that is in their own heart. You want to help them to understand the relevance of the gospel to whatever it is that they're struggling with. You may need to give to them specific passages that relate specifically to whatever it is that they are struggling with. Uh, These are just all things to keep in mind in the instructional phase. You do want, in the instruction, to give to them a good, solid, hardcore, concrete plan that they can implement so that if they implement it, they will grow as a result. Moving to the next I, the next I of inducement. Inducement involves getting the counselee to commit to God and his ways and be willing to do whatever is biblically necessary in order to grow spiritually and honor the Lord. Again, inducement involves getting the counselee to commit to God and his ways. Get the person to say, you know what, I will obey the Lord. Choose for yourself this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Therefore, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Um, I beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Take off the sin and, and be renewed in your mind and put on holiness. Every command of the scripture, in essence, is an inducement command. It is God trying to get his people to walk in his ways and to follow his ways. And part of what you want to do is you want to secure commitment from the person that you are giving counsel to. Getting them to say, you know what, I will do it. The plan that you give to me, I will put into practice. I will put into action. And we will work on this thing together. And I will allow God to use you as an instrument in my life so that as a result, through the counsel you give to me, I might be able to take steps forward in growth. And so again, the importance of inducement. There are various reasons for commitment. Various reasons as to why the person should surrender their life to the Lord that you can present. And sometimes you need to present these reasons. You know what? If you do this, God will be glorified. You have the ability through obedience, through taking that step of faith, through laying aside the sin, or through trusting in the Lord amidst the trial, you have the ability to be an expression through which God's glory is manifest. God can be glorified. You may need to help this person to understand you yourself will experience sanctification. Just take that first step. I know it's hard. I know that it seems like it's impossible for for you to take that first step of faith, but do it. Because if you do, that first step in the right direction is the first step to the second step to the third step. And in due time, you will experience yourself at some point in the future experiencing victory in Jesus Christ, living to the glory of God, glorifying him, being sanctified. And you will experience the personal blessings that come along with that. You will put yourself in a place in which you can be used of this mighty God in the lives of people around you for their sanctification as well. See, part of what we're doing here is we're continuing to encourage and to instill hope. And we're helping them to understand that there are good reasons why they should obey. And we want to get them to commit. Sometimes in the scripture, God uses the threat of hell 
And you know those passages where the Lord Jesus Christ says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And if you don't, you're going to go to hell sort of thing, right? Um, and, so, and so sometimes you may need to, to admonish a person in that regard. Somehow, some way to get them to be motivated to, to, to commitment. You may find resistance. I don't care what you have to say to me. I've heard what you have to say to me. I know it is right. I'm not going to do it anyway. Sometimes people have an attitude about obeying the Lord, and all you're trying to do is be a loving brother or sister, come alongside to give them the counsel that comes from God, and they just dig their heels in. They, sti- you know, they stiffen their necks, and they harden their hearts. They say, you know, get out of my face. Well, that's very unfortunate, but in those situations, we have a measure that we can take for their good and for the glory of God. Matthew 18, bring another brother along, and in due time, if that doesn't work, bring it before the leaders of the church, the elders. And if due time, there may be loving excommunication, if you will, that needs to take place in the life of that person for their benefit and for the glory of God. And this is an instrument that can be used to secure commitment, inducement. Moving on, implementation. Implementation involves actually helping the counselee to plan and begin putting into action God's will in the practical areas. You've got to come up with a plan and get them to implement that plan once they have committed themselves to it. The plan needs to be specific, and I submit to you that the plan has to include the Ephesians 4.22 paradigm. So important. Put off, be renewed, put on. If you remove any one of those from the plan, your plan is deficient. It's not enough for a person to stop lying. They have to go beyond that and replace the bad habit with a good habit. Start speaking the truth. And therein lies the victory. Put off, be renewed in the attitude of your mind, and put on uh, something that is, that, you know, Christ-likeness in the place of the flesh. Okay, so you need to factor that into your thinking as you give counsel and as you seek to get the person to implement a plan. It's a hard process. It takes time. It takes much prayer, hard work oftentimes in the life of a person. But the reward is there if they would simply obey God and his word. Let's move on to integration. Oh, just, I'm sorry, real quick, just back to this implementation thing. Um, sometimes you've got to come up with a real specific plan for the person. Be very specific in the plan. So let's say, for example, someone's struggling with sexual lust. They need to come to the place in their life where they acknowledge the temptation when it happens. They need to learn how to pray during the temptation, looking to the Lord for strength in the midst of their temptation. They may need to move from the location in which the temptation is being experienced or just innocently walking down the street and all of a sudden a beautiful lady, you know, half naked walks down the street and the guy is struggling with lust. You know, move from the situation. Don't just stand there and look, dummy, move. You wouldn't want to say that to the person in the counseling session, but you get the point. Um, you know, you may want that person to identify the idol of the heart. You may want to get that person to, to, to meditate upon, to quote the relevant passages of God's word to himself in reference to the sin he or she is struggling with. You may want to get that person to re- rehearse the gospel to himself in ways that are directly relevant to the sin he or she is struggling with. Get that person to remind themselves of the attributes of God that are relevant to the situation. God is present. God is near. He will deliver you. He will help you. 
you. He loves you. He is holy. Don't mess with him. You know, and as a person begins to envelop a right view of God and allow that to impact how they live out their lives, that is a sure recipe for, for sanctification when applied. And perhaps help that person um, to, to realize that, you know, maybe some, part of what they need to do is call a person for accountability. Oh, uh, uh, Joe, I just need you to pray for me right now. I am struggling with this particular sin in my life. Would you pray for me? These are just various aspects of a plan that you might develop for a person in terms of giving them counsel to help that person deal with whatever it is they're struggling with. And it has to be relevant to what they're struggling with, obviously. Now we move on to integration. Integration involves helping the counselee towards maturation. The goal here is to see the counselee functioning in a healthy, vibrant, and serving manner, fully integrated into the body of Christ, experiencing the fullness of God, experiencing the gospel in all of its fullness. This is integration where God is using them in the lives of other people to be a blessing to the people around them. This is integration. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.28 says, We proclaim him, meaning Jesus, and as we proclaim Jesus, we are admonishing every man and we are teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ, mature in Christ. And this is what integration is all about, bringing a person to the place of maturity in Christ, to where God can use them mightily in the advancement of his kingdom. Their witness is a witness that does no harm to the name and to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are obeying the Lord in the various areas of their life. They're experiencing the fullness. They're full of the Spirit, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. This is what you want to see. And whatever struggle that they were struggling with, that is long gone. It is history. It is in the past. They are not the person they used to be. They are being clothed in Christ and being renewed in their relationship to the Lord, and they are excited about the things of the Lord. This is integration. How do you know when a person's integrated? Give me about two more minutes. How do you know when a person is integrated? They see life through a Christian worldview. Sin problems decrease in intensity and frequency. Victory is experienced over a prolonged period of time. You know, this is why five little counseling sessions doesn't necessarily do it with someone who is really struggling. And at the first seminary that I went to, I took a class on biblical counseling, and they said five sessions, and that's it. And I asked myself, where in the world in Scripture do you find that? Ministering to people requires a sacrifice it requires a pouring out of the heart. It requires a person that says, you know what, I will, be for, I will be there for you in thick and thin. I want to be the instrument God uses in your life. Call me at 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't care if you're struggling. Give me a call and we'll talk about it. We'll pray about it. Ultimately, the goal of all of this is that this person comes to the place where they are fully integrated. They're counseling others. They're exhorting others. They're building others up. They're involved in ministry. They're walking in the power of the Spirit, rejoicing in the gospel, experiencing it in all of its fullness. This is a, an approach to counsel. These are various legs of the table, and if you remove one, you're going to mess up. You've got to keep these things in mind. Involvement, building 
and advancing the relationship, inspiration, instilling biblical hope in the life of that person, inventory, gathering the data, knowing what is going on in the outer and inner man, interpretation, interpreting what you are learning about that person in light of the standard of God's word, and then instructing that person according to the word of God in relevant practical ways so that that person can move forward in victory and obedience to Christ. Inducement in which you're saying to that person, will you do this? Will you obey the Lord? Will you lay aside the sin? If you're not willing to do that, I have nothing more to offer. You have to come to that point in your life in which as a matter of the will you say, I will obey my Lord. Implementation, where you're helping them to apply the word of God in their lives in very concrete and practical ways and an integration, where finally, glory be to God, you have been used as an instrument of his grace so that through the mouth, through the words you speak, life is imparted and the person that you have ministered to is fully integrated in the life body. They are walking in total openness and transparency. They have nothing to hide. They are walking in the light as he himself is the light. And everyone can look at the person and know there is a person who is experiencing the fullness of God in their lives. And so brothers and sisters, just keep these things in mind as the Lord brings your way opportunity to give counsel so that as a result, you are what God has called you to be, an expression of his grace and his counsel in the life of your brothers and sisters. And finally, another point. Don't just look to the pastoral staff as instruments God wants to use to give to you counsel. Look to the brother or the sister right next to you. Look to those in your care group. Look to those who speak to you from Sunday to Sunday. Look to your care group leaders. Look to these people and note that God will express his counsel to you through these means and begin to see one another in this light. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and I pray, Lord, that at least some of what I have had to share proves to be beneficial to your people for whom you have shed your blood. Help us as a body to be effective and biblical in our approach to counsel. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank Carlos for blessing us with that message. And again, this, this is a, uh, a very strategic message for where we're at as a church. Um, again, not to beat a dead horse, but uh, Pastor Milton, he is a very gifted counselor. <clears throat> but if we are going to um, 